This is episode 87 of the Meme Factory podcast. We are joined this week by Jesse Posner, a Bitcoin open source developer who is working in Frost, a new way to generate and manage keys. This week we are sponsored by Coddle.co. Coddle.co offers the best steel backup plates for the price in my opinion. These plates are very compact, made out of 304 steel, and come with a punch. These plates are small, robust, and can withstand fire, water, corrosion, and crushing with no damage loss. Check them out at coddle.co. We are sponsored by Simply Bitcoin. This is a Bitcoin-only daily show. Check them out at youtube.com slash simplybitcoin. And finally, we are sponsored by CryptoCloaks. CryptoCloak strives for quality products and innovative solutions for your Bitcoin signing devices and Bitcoin nodes. Check out the Yellow Edition MK4 cold card case at CryptoCloaks.com. Enjoy the show. They said they can't hear Jesse right now. Sorry. The chat saying they can't hear Jesse. All right. I think I might have fixed it. Keep talking. Uh, Greg messed it up. Can you hear me now? Greg potatoed it. Uh Uh-oh. So you are a a lawyer turned cypherpunk turned what now? Plumber? Uh, So now I'm a a Bitcoin (laughs) open source developer, and I focus on cryptography, um, working with keys, signatures, uh, and I'm currently working on uh, an implementation of a cryptographic system called Frost, um, which is something we're going to, is now enabled by Taproot and Schnorr signatures, and it's a completely new way of generating keys, managing keys, working with signatures. Um, and yeah, it was all kind of inspired by the, the cypherpunk vision of um, code is law, and, uh, and we can... Uh, have sort of a nonviolent form of law with decentralized systems and, and cryptography for the first time, perhaps in history. Cool. Well, I know what some of that meant. And <laughs> we're going to explore a lot more of it as the show goes on. But in the meantime, I need to let you know that this show is a little bit different from the others. One of our sponsors, SusCorp, requires that the guest reads the ad copy for the week. I've sent it to your DMs. If you could pull it up at your convenience and rip through it, then we can just get on with the show and get paid. Absolutely. Yeah, so we've got a great sponsor tonight, uh, SusCorp. Um, so, uh, uh, oh joy, another social media app. But wait, this one's different. Brought to you by the ever-so-reliable SusCorp. It's the anti-social media app. You heard it. The app that takes all the social out of social media. Make a profile and then bask in the sweet abyss of nothingness. No likes, no viral cat videos, no inspirational quotes from your high school buddy who sells vitamins. Just pure, unadulterated digital silence. But that's not all, early adopters. Download SusCorp's anti-social media app now and get the exclusive ringback ringtone that says, I would prefer not to, every time somebody tries to call you. Is your totally real and not imaginary girlfriend calling you to inquire about dinner options? I would prefer not to. Is your uh, time to talk about your vehicle's extended warranty? I would prefer not to. Here's the kicker, folks. The app is currently disabled in the Apple App Store because they can't monetize it. Suscorp's anti-social media app. It's like the party you always wanted to avoid. Available, well, almost nowhere. This is a fictional product. Human connections are essential. Talk to real people, unless, of course, you prefer not to. Woo! Yay! Well Thank you, Jesse. All right, we'll keep <laughs> an eye on the uh, on the sparrow wallet. See when uh, see when that money gets in there. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna shift this over to Becca, who's got uh, some options for you to run through, so uh, you won't go hungry this evening. Yeah, Jesse, I don't want you to uh, go hungry. Um, so I created a sandwich menu for you. I was doing a little bit of research. Oh, I was doing a little bit of research and I hear you're a bagel fan. I'm Cana- <laughs> I'm up in Canada and you know we have some super famous bagels here. So 
I hope you like what I've created for you. So first, our first special is the subprime no trust Sammy. So maybe it's a ribeye, maybe it's a bag of poop. Um, trust yellow in the kitchen to assemble this special. And it doesn't come with a swan sponsorship. Unfortunately, we can't offer those anymore. So here is our not safe for work. So did you know that the British had a very special name for bagel or what it translated to? <laughs> butthole bread. So I have a butthole bread schmear. It's a Montreal bagel with our new test product, the Meme Factory Cream Cheese. It's hand churred by our newest intern rope. It's uh it's pretty good, Yellow says. Mm -hmm. So um, and then hey. we have our house special. <laughs> Yellow's Don't Stop Believing Steak, Sammy. It's been marinated in Red Bull for 598 days. So it's got a real kick there for you. It's so a safer these option, are I think. your three specials I have. Thank you so much. That's amazing. Um, yeah. That's what we do here. Love it. We got to pick. Might one. go with the subprime. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, the subprime one uh, is particularly interesting to me. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Um, Yellow will have that right over to you, Jesse. Excellent. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. Much appreciate Thank you. Thank you, Becca. All right. Let's get that butthole bread delivered to him. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Jesse, I want to talk about. I want to start with Bartleby the Scrivener. All right, it is. I didn't realize you were into him until I saw the title on your uh, on your Twitter page. Saw the. Uh, I would prefer not to. Obviously, a Bartleby the Scrivener reference. Could you give me the rundown on what that story is and what it means to you? Absolutely, yeah. So, Bartleby the Scrivener is a surprisingly deep rabbit hole uh, that, for some philosophers, has uh, <laughs> has uh, come to kind of embody the entire history of political philosophy and political theology. Uh, I've got first turned on to this actually by uh, someone who I think has been on the show, Eric Kaysen, mm -hmm. um, who I met way back when, uh, when we were both working at Coinbase on my first day, he uh, was onboarding me into the company. And this was like the earlier days of Coinbase when it was like less Bitcoinery. When Eric still that. worked there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but uh, yeah, we started talking about Heidegger and Schmidt and all this stuff. And he was like, "Hey, have you heard about this guy Giorgio Agamben, this Italian philosopher?" Um, and Agamben completely blew my mind. And one of the things he's very focused on is Bartleby the Scrivener as the solution to this paradox of sovereign violence. That somehow this story of Bartleby contains the key to our political problems uh and also again i have to unpack that for me what yeah no there's a there's a lot to unpack so basically the story is a melville story it's a short story there's uh, a lawyer who um is kind of your typical like victorian style uh lawyer and he has a scrivener who writes down and copies these contracts and these laws uh by hand and one day the Scrivener just decides like he doesn't want to do this anymore, but he uses this very peculiar phrase. He doesn't say like, I'm not going to do this or I don't want to do this. He says, I, I would prefer not to. And it's, it's hard to pin down exactly what he's asserting with that phrase. Is he saying he's going to do it? He's not going to do it. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a, in a state of indeterminacy that can't quite be pinned down. And it kind of drives this lawyer mad because he can't really reconcile. Like, what is this person saying? Why is he saying it? How do I approach it? How do I like deal with, with this confrontation? Um, and it's an, it's an example of how uh, structurally the problems of the law the way uh, the way to overcome them is through a total refusal of the terms with, within which the law has been defined. Because a lot of the problems of the law 
um, are trapped in this paradox structurally that we're not really able to get out. Uh, one aspect of it that's been uh, commonly defined is the tension between the constituting part of the law and the constituted part of the law. So the constituting part of the law is the part of the law that forms the system. So let's say like in the American Revolution, there's this power that the people have to create a new law. But then once the new law is created, then you have the constituted power, which is the law that's already been created. And it has an unclear relationship back to that original source of law that can make law anew. And it, it gets trapped in this cycle where every time a, a legal system is overthrown, it's replaced by this new constituted power that takes on all the features of the old uh, constituted power. And so when we try to kind of rebel or try to introduce a new system, we're sort of caught with recreating the system of the past. So we need turning. a more, it keeps turning, this cycle keeps turning. And so we need a more radical break from the entire conceptual apparatus not just the terms we've already defined, but some completely new way of thinking about law that's outside of a history that goes back thousands of years. And I think in many ways, um, Bitcoin and, and Satoshi is, is a model of Bartleby, a model of a radical reframing of the very terms and structure of the law itself. Um, and a refusal to participate within those terms that have already been defined for it. So you prefer not to operate inside of the fiat financial system. Exactly. Interesting. Now, in that vein, you know, Bitcoin isn't per perfectly in the, I would prefer not to stage it, right? What kind of things does Bitcoin need to allow everybody still to say, I would prefer not to interact? If I, if I can add to that, because we're not in that stage yet, and we are in, like in the, in the between stage of the so-called hyper-Bitcoinized world, like that, for you personally, does it, does it come to options? Like, can I, like, whatever is uh, in front of you, do you ask yourself daily, how can I do this outside the system? And is is it like a duality play for for you, like every day around that? How how do you manage that? Yeah, those those are great questions. Uh, maybe I'll start with that second question, uh, which is, I guess one way I think about it is through the cypherpunk lens of cypherpunk's code. So the language of the law uh, that of sovereign violence is a language of uh, of uh, of persuasion and democracy. So trying to go to the public square and persuade people that this is right or this is wrong. Whereas the cypherpunk modality is to participate in the esoteric language of code that isn't easily seen. It's, it's taking place underneath the surface. It almost has shamanic qualities where you're dealing with this unconscious and subconscious layer of humanity that is only accessible by the few, not by the masses. And it doesn't use the, uh, it doesn't use coercion and it doesn't use violence and it doesn't use force. It uses a more hidden type of power uh, to implement itself and it encrypts what it's doing. So it, it encrypts the activity, it encrypts the, the actual purpose of what it's doing. It pretends to be um, a casino about betting on tokens or percent pretends to be um, just a way of making transactions a little bit more efficient. That's what it looks like on the surface, but underneath the code and the mathematics and the systems and the engineering is being built without interruption. And if it came too much to the surface, it would be too easily interrupted. So it's a, so that's sort of this, I would prefer not to, I'm not going to, try to create change on this level of let's convince 51% of the people to like use the violence machine in the right way. Instead, I'm just going to write and publish code and participate in the network of people who are doing that um, to create change that people can only have power to the extent that people voluntarily opt into it. And it has absolutely no power to force anybody to do anything. 
Can you determine? Yes. Can you define the term sovereign violence for me? What do you What do you mean when you're talking about sovereign violence with regards to the law? So that's another idea that I've been influenced by from Giorgio Agamben, who identifies sovereign violence as uh, relating to this power to declare somebody homo sacer, which in Latin means sacred Excuse man. Excuse me, sir. <laughs> not, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, Greg. Not that there's anything right, wrong. exactly. Um, you know, to each their own. But uh, this goes back to uh, a punishment in Roman law, where somebody could be declared homo sacer, which means you're totally outside the system of of law and religion simultaneously. What does that mean? If you were declared this status, anyone could kill you. And it would not be illegal. It doesn't mean they're going to execute you. It just is like the law no longer protects you, right? But does and it? It doesn't work the other way as well. So like, in, so like, in, like can they kill anybody without legal repercussions? No, no. Okay, no, they're, just, they're still they're still just... bound by the law, Ugh. but the law is no longer bound to them. Ouch, Epstein's. Right. Exactly. There's a lot oh, of like, examples of this. like uh, black people now. <laughs> states <laughs> i mean it's it's come up for example um so it relates to uh this other idea of carl schmidt which is the uh the exception so schmidt kind of posed this very serious challenge to liberalism um where he said you know no matter what kind of constitutional order you have or system of law that you have you, there's implicitly a power that the sovereign has to suspend the law. So let's say, for example, in a state of emergency, to suspend the normal order. And you can't get around this because the legal system can't actually operate in a, when it can't rule over a chaotic um, state if, if, the, if, the, if the country is being invaded or something like that. It needs norms that it's held within for the legal system to operate. And that's being held by the sovereign. And the sovereign can potentially suspend that to restore the order to allow the legal system to operate. And this is like usually in every constitution, there's actually a provision for this. Like we have uh, in our constitution that you can suspend habeas corpus um, in like the French constitution. There's this idea of like the state of siege. There's always this like escape hatch for an emergency where you can suspend the law. And when people are caught in that suspension, they have the status of homo sacer. So like the most stark example of that is the people in the concentration camps. The first thing that was done to them was that their citizenship was removed before they were brought to the concentration camps because they had no more legal status. They weren't recognized as humans under the law. So anything is permissible to a person in that state and a concentration camp is a permanent site where the law has excluded itself from that site. So we see that in different forms, like including, let's say, Guantanamo Bay in the US, even though obviously it's not the same as the Nazi concentration camps, there's a similar legal structure where mm -hmm. if you're in that place, you have, like the law has abandoned itself to you. You're not recognized as existing within the law. So you have the status of homo sacer. And increasingly that we're in this time of a permanent emergency where we have these forever wars. So we have a permanent exception, a permanent suspension of the law. And in that sense, we're all kind of be becoming part of this status of homo sacer where it's not clear if the law is in effect or suspended for any of us. Hmm. So how does, uh, how does Bitcoin help with that? Um, yeah, and, and just to close the loop on that, sovereign violence is the power to declare that the sovereign ban, to say the law oh. no longer applies to you. Gotcha. That is the heart of the sovereign power, is the ability to do that to someone and, and it's reducing them to a state that's worse than just being like in the state of nature it's something we can only create in society where you're in the system insofar as you're outside of it so how does so, how does bitcoin get us to heterosaker <laughs> so uh uh 
Bitcoin. Jesse, Jesse, uh, that's when you gotta say. That's when you gotta say "f you, Greg." That's the. That's the <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, there's room for both hetero and homo saker in in the world of, of Bitcoin. Of course, but yeah. uh, uh, it's a big world. It's a big world. It's a big Bitcoin world out there. And puppets. Um, and, and puppets. Yeah. You know, all 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 kinds of. Uh, I mean, part of the beauty of of Bitcoin is it doesn't really care. You know. Was that saying like on the internet nobody knows that you're a dog or something? It's like Bitcoin doesn't care <laughs> who or what you are if you're like a puppet, if you're you know real or not. All it cares about is like, do you have the cryptographic key? Yep. So that's the only thing that matters. If you have the key, you have the right to speak. You have the right to privacy. You have the right to free association and and economic trade. If you have the cryptographic key. So there is no sovereign exception in Bitcoin. There's no institution that sits in the middle that says, actually for you, it doesn't count, right? It's right. the same rules for everyone. And so that's the one level at which it addresses the sovereign exception, unlike Ethereum with the Dow hard fork, where right from the beginning, there was an exception, right from the very beginning. It was like, you, you guys count, you don't count. It was a couple months in, okay? <laughs> right. Yeah. Not, not from day one. But uh, and then the, the other ways in which it operates to counter the sovereign exception is that as uh, well, first of all, it's it helps um, defund the actual infrastructure of sovereign violence. How? Well, by undermining the, the money claim. printing machine. It's a bold claim. How, yeah. how does it undermine the money printing machine? Well, if you create a better form of money, if you create something that can outcompete fiat currency on every level, and that's a place where, you know, to go to your initial question, we're still in beta, it's still a work in progress. But I think where we're going is a money that is 10x better than fiat in every single dimension you can measure it in. And, you know, if not more, you know, infinite X when you take into account, like, the issues around sovereign violence, but just in terms of the more mundane aspects of like the Aristotelian like measurements of what makes good money or not, Bitcoin's going to wipe the floor with all the alternatives. So people are going to want to use Bitcoin as money instead of fiat. The more utility, the more powerful it becomes, and it's a it's a paradigm leap in terms of the technology of money. Um, and then, of course, you know, that ties into the issue of inflation and scarcity, that fiat currency is bound to kind of inflate itself and print itself. And we're in a time where there, we're at the, the, if you look at the polling, there's the least amount of faith in public institutions that there's ever been. And so in terms of asserting itself as the preeminent source of legitimacy, and justice and integrity in terms of our legal systems, Bitcoin is asserting itself as that. It's, it's putting the gauntlet on the table that's saying, I am the preeminent source of legitimacy, not you, the state, fiat. I am the one that maintains order. I am the one that maintains justice. And it does this, it has credibility that fiat never can because it doesn't use violence to assert that. Every time the fiat system or the state imposes its sense of justice through violence, it undermines its moral credibility. You know, the fact that we have a higher percentage of our population in prison than any other country in the world, in the U.S., that we have people in cages every day because they want to change their consciousness or, you know, victimless crimes and so on, that is an indictment of our system that, the, that Bitcoin doesn't have. And so... As these like stark alternatives uh, promulgate themselves in society over time, well, can't you go to jail for win. promulgating yourself in society, like in public? Well, going going to jail is one of the best ways to prove the moral illegitimacy of the oppressor. Now, Greg's, you, making, Greg's making jokes again. If you've got going, if going you, to jail and writing a book, if you've got these two separate systems <laughs> that exist simultaneously, right? <laughs> And, you know, I've got one key to move my Bitcoin from place to place 
and uh, you know if the other system sees me and then labels key? me over you know homo saker because they could see my one key and what kind of options do we have or what kind of options are we working on that'll solve that yeah it's a great question i mean that's you. that's <laughs> as usual um that's why one of the reasons privacy is so important and so pivotal because uh, if if what I'm doing can't be detected, then I can't be punished for it. I can't be imprisoned for it if the activity isn't actually seen or easily discoverable. And even if it can be discovered, if it's not, if it's like, okay, well, you know, if there's a team of like 20 CIA people all trying to figure out what you're doing, it's it's not necessarily impenetrable to that. But you get into this, the mm -hmm. economics of the scale. So it's like, even though there may be the resources to go after a small group of people, it doesn't scale up to the whole population. So the economics of mass surveillance become infeasible if you can raise the cost to uh, to exploit the privacy vulnerabilities. Yeah. So that gives protection to people in meat space, which goes back to like the original cypherpunks idea ideas in the short story, True, uh, True Nims about like the vr uh like hackers who like if they're just like the wizards in medieval times if somebody knows your name then they can take your power but if they don't know your true name then they'd have no power over you can no. i can i uh can i do a recap so i can I totally understand your argument you said that uh sovereign violence can be uh um, forced you on, on to Bitcoiners because like Bitcoin basically empowers the Bitcoiner to hold his own keys like in his mind or something and that gives him the power to not be forced right so sovereign, sovereign violence is negated through that is that something that we say to ourselves or in the end do you believe the 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 fear of violence, of power, call it what you want, is in the end the ultimate uh, counter uh, counterweight to their violence. Do you, do you think that we have to become like powerful enough in this community, call it what you want, this network, and have the ability to push back? Or does the previous argument is enough for us to not feel the sovereign violence? I think that we, if we try to push back with our own violence, then we're going to be caught back into that, the, the dialectic and the trap of sovereign violence that just repeats itself. So I think the most powerful thing we can do as Bitcoiners is the, I would prefer not to, to not participate in that modality at all. And I think it's not going to be, like, people are going to get, caught in sovereign violence like it's already happening we have like you know ross in jail or you know the tornado cash devs like yeah people are going to get hurt and there's going to be heroes and there's going to be sacrifices just like there is in, in every great change but it's going to be one piece of the puzzle that it will be economically difficult for just like we've seen with other internet technologies like let's say uh, BitTorrent or file sharing. Like I can still go on the internet and download any movie or download any like song I want, despite all the attempts by all the systems of law and corporate power, whatever, to stop it. There's a certain aspect of cryptography, decentralized technology that is able to push back, not completely, but it has this power that is remarkably resistant to violence, that no amount of violence can solve a math equation, which is this remarkable thing. But I don't think that alone is sufficient. I do think that the sapping the economic resources is a really important part of the strategy as well, that we have to bankrupt the these institutions so they don't have the money to finance what they're doing because it's really expensive. The military industrial complex is super expensive. Mass surveillance is super expensive. The money has to come from somewhere. So if you can cut that off, if you can get people onto a Bitcoin standard and away from dirty fiat where people don't want to use it. They don't like it ethically. It's not as useful to them. And it, and we have a hyper Bitcoinization. 
that is the other prong of the strategy. We have like the defensive prong where we can resist. And then the offensive prong is not through violence, but through the market, through hyper-Bitcoinization and destabilizing fiat currency. So how do we, how do we freeze uh, any prying eyes out of seeing who and what makes a particular transaction outside of like, uh, like whirlpools or coin joins? Yeah, so that's a big topic. I mean, I think the exciting thing about it is that we've barely scratched the surface of what's possible. Bitcoin engineers have new ideas, new insights every single day, discovering new things that we can do with math and cryptography that nobody thought was possible. And by the way, now academia is looking into this stuff as well, because it's giving all these academic cryptographers an actual use case where if they invent something new, it gets deployed uh, on Bitcoin. So Taproot and Schnorr and, and Frost, uh, what I'm working on is going to be a big part of that, because um, right now the scripts leave a, a, a big fingerprint in the blockchain about what you're doing. Maybe you have a two of three pay to witness script hash output or three of five, or maybe use some other script type or, or, you know, a two of three, but with a time lock and like the more idiosyncratic what you're doing is the more that gives a signature of like, there's only certain people who have this set up and you're probably one of them and so on. So what we want to do with taproot is have most of the spending take place in what's called the key spend path instead of the script spend path. There's these two ways to spend taproot funds. One is how we typically do in Bitcoin, we re reveal the script. But the other is just to sign with this one single key. An ordinal. And in, in ordinal, so you can shitcoin your way to victory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you can, you can make all these different setups, whether it's multi-sig, single sig, lightning or you know all this weird exotic stuff we all want it to look exactly the same on the blockchain we all want it to look like it's just one key one signature you can't tell multiple parties are involved you can't tell what the details of it and that model in general where like if you think of the ideal blockchain all it does is enforce the promises people make to one another without knowing any of the details of what those promises are and that's kind of the direction we're going in, where it just is able to guarantee like, yep, this is what you agreed to. I have no idea what that is, but this is in fact what you agreed to. <laughs> so, so basically you want, that, you want that cypher meme to just be, all I see are single SIG transactions. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And that's why we gotta get freaking these exchanges like Binance and Coinbase to support pay to tap route. Um, sending right now if you want to withdraw your bitcoin from a lot of the large exchanges you can't withdraw it to a taproot address and this makes it really difficult for wallet developers who want to support taproot but they know some of the biggest feeders into their wallet don't support that address type um so we gotta we gotta turn up the heat and also it's particularly annoying because it's literally like one day of an engineer's like time to implement the change like it's super simple change and we've documented it on this site when taproot um why don't so yeah. they do it because you think they, they just rather not to are they are they an enemy they prefer not to they would prefer not to um it's it's not a it's not a priority for them because people aren't asking for it and they'd much rather put those resources into adding the next shit coin then you know they're they're focused on the things that are going to drive revenue. So you're telling so me ordinals might actually have a them, good side. I mean, I guess everything has both a light, uh, a light and dark side to it. Damn it! <laughs> I mean, I, I will say this with ordinals: when I saw the um, Agamben compares Barbie the Scrivener to the Tiananmen Square Tank Who? Man. Uh. Uh, Giorgio Agamben, that's the gotcha. philosopher. philosopher. Yeah, I follow. He compares um, Bartleby to uh, to the Tiananmen Square tank man as an example of that kind of total refusal without asserting a new system, but just this total refusal to participate. Um, 
And when I saw that one of the uh, inscriptions on the blockchain was the Tiananmen Square Tank Man, that kind of at least made me recognize that there is a political value that can be exploited with the technology, um, even if a lot of it is being used for, you know, wasteful, spammy reasons. We like a good Sammy here. <laughs> Spammy. It just seems like uh, like the Bitcoiner, like what we normally say is opt out, right? Like the, I would prefer not to. It's a it's an opt out, don't comply, you know, be, be ungovernable type of type of feel. Exactly. So, you have a an NDA with uh, some company that won't be named because you're working on some stuff that they don't want you talking about. What can you tell us about the stuff anyway? <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, there's an approval process that I didn't realize that I had just have to like ask for permission if I'm gonna represent the company to talk about the thing that I can't talk about. But I guess what I can say in general is that I'm looking at how Frost can be used to, um, uh, build like a next generation of self-custody wallet. Um, and in particular, there's some really interesting things that we can do with respect to lightning that I think are, are super exciting. Um, and, uh, like none of this, none of this is necessarily things that we are going to do, but some things that, uh, that we've been thinking about. So for example, I've been working, uh, do you guys know Z-Man by any chance? He's like a lightning dev who's no. like a great example of cypherpunk values no. because his name is like just a series of consonants that start with zmn and then there's like some numbers and letters and stuff and nobody knows like who this person is um and but he's 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 referred to as z-man because the first three letters are zmn um and uh he's a brilliant engineer and we developed this new uh, lightning um, uh, swap called Swap and Potentium. And the goal for this type of technology for both Frost and Swap and Potentium is to see, can we build a Bitcoin wallet where both layer one and layer two are so integrated that the end user doesn't need to actually be aware of what these things are. Because as we start focusing on a mainstream audience, your average you know, person out there who's not necessarily technologically savvy, not necessarily gonna use Bitcoin because they're super ideologically motivated or willing to put up with like a crappy UX. We need to deliver like a first class user experience that anyone can use. And for those people, like they're not going to want to know what a lightning channel is no. and they're not going to want to have to think about liquidity and be like, oh, does my channel have liquidity? And do I need to transfer between L1 and L2 before I, all that stuff like sucks? So we're I, I'm trying to figure out, uh, like, how could we handle the liquidity management and the key management in the background so it's just ready when you need it and part of that is swaps where when you go to buy your cup of coffee with lightning we need a way where if there's not enough outbound liquidity in your lightning channel that on demand just in time you can swap in that liquidity from your uh from l1 um without needing to wait for an on-chain confirmation Wow. So that way, wallet developers can just make it happen when you need to make the payment. It just happens, and you don't need to know that it even happened at all. And so that's where Swap and Potentium um, allows that because it locks up some some layer. When you receive layer one coins, you have this time lock on it. And until the time lock expires, you to spend the coins, you need your LSP to sign off. And if your LSP is like a huge asshole, you just like Back stop up. doing business with them. Backup LSP, liquidity service provider. Uh, oh, a um, a lightning service provider. Oh, so what's what's not, happening not a list. is? Can we call them lists? Not a list. No. Call them lists. Uh, can we can uh, we back it up a little bit? You said that you can swap uh, for liquidity that you don't have in Lightning Network. You can swap it with liquidity you have in the sec in the first layer. 
Yes, yes, exactly. And with no confirmation? Yes. How the fuck is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, no, that's the do cool you part. See a change? Do you see a change in Somebody the coins in the first layer? Yeah, so so the first... So someone... Uh, so uh, I think Lightning Labs... Because if you don't, that's a way to, for that Satoshi, let's say, to move his coins, and we don't know. Oh, well, you would say it's, it's, so the first thing this is based on is something called a submarine swap, which has already existed in Lightning, uh, developed, I think, by Lightning Labs. And what it does is it's a way of swapping layer one coins for layer two coins. But you have to wait for an on-chain confirmation. Okay. But it's an atomic swap where either they both succeed or they both fail, and okay. it's trustless. And the way it works is, you, um, it, I will, uh, I basically make if, if let's say there's Alice and Bob, and they want to they want to swap coins. Alice ah, sends Bob. Alice and Bob. Uh, we like Bob here. <laughs> good old partners. Exactly. Yeah, they've done a lot of good for the world. Um, <laughs> so Alice and Bob. Alice sends coins to Bob on Shane, but she encumbers them with a hash. Uh, where for Bob to to redeem the coins, he needs to know the hash pre-image. Um, which is basically a secret that Alice knows, but Bob doesn't know. And there's a time lock where if Bob like disappears and doesn't redeem after a certain amount of time, Alice can like get her coins back. But if until the time lock expires, if Bob learns this secret, he can take the coins. And so then what Bob does is he then sends Alice in their lightning channel, the same amount of coins, and he ties those coins to the same hash. Because he knows the hash, but not the pre-image to the hash. The pre-image is the input into the hash. So the thing about a hash is, like, it's just a mathematical function, and you can put anything into it, and you get a random number as an output of can the function. Can you put a watermelon into it? You can put a watermelon. As long as you can encode it in bits and bytes, okay. you, can, you can put it through the hash function. Um, and so, you know, according to the simulation hypothesis, it's all bits, you know, all the way down. But... Putting that aside, um, the the you if you have the output of a hash, you can't guess the input. But if I tell you the input, you can verify that it matches. So Bob knows the output of the hash, but only Alice knows the input. Okay. So he sends coins through the lightning channel to Alice tied to the output of the hash, which he knows. And then for Alice to take those coins, she has to reveal the input, the secret input has to be revealed for her to take the coins that Bob, Bob sent to her. And so when she takes the coins, she reveals the secret, and then Bob is able to use that secret to take the coins on layer one. So they've okay. swapped layer one for layer two trustlessly. And the problem with doing this without waiting for confirmation is Alice could double spend Bob. So if Bob doesn't wait for an on-chain confirmation, Bob sends the coins in the lightning channel and then Alice double spends the transaction where she sent him these coins tied with the hash and takes her coins on L1 and on L2. So Bob to do this safely has to wait. So what we do instead is because we have this model of an LFP where we have this one lightning channel uh, counterparty that has a ton of liquidity Instead of opening up a bunch of channels, we open one channel to this mega hub that can route to anybody. And we we set it up where whenever we whenever I, as a wallet user receive Bitcoin, I have an address where in order to spend that Bitcoin, it also requires the LSP signature. Okay. Until the time lock expires. So if the LSP is evil, I have to wait for the time lock to expire. But if the so LSP is in not simple evil. Terms, in simple terms, you basically took a, a channel between uh, two points on the Lightning Network. You made it way wider, right? Yes. And in the end, you have multiple entities that have to kind of multi-sig and agree in order for a, for a back and forth to be happen. That's correct. In fact, what set this 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 type of special 
arrangement with the LSP is what's called a Spillman style channel. It's a unidirectional channel that was a precursor to lightning. So you're actually setting up a Spillman style channel to help fund your lightning channel. Um, and, uh, and so you can, that's where you can now Bob can honor the swap instantly without taking on double spend risk because Alice can't double spend without Bob's signature. That, doesn't that look like though, um, cancels a little bit decentralization. Basically you have, if, if the road is bigger, right, you have a little less decentralized entity there but like it's locked by the control is locked by more multisigs right it is but there's a time lock that expires where all the encumbrances go away so okay. if you're if you want out you just have to wait for the time lock to expire and each time lock is rolling off your utxos as you receive them so your older utxos the time locks are expiring and the newer UTXOs, oh. the time locks are starting. So it's not like time locking all your Bitcoin at the same time. Okay, okay. Oh my fucking, yeah. The hand <laughs> thing you did, the hand thing you did really helped me <laughs> I'm not fucking kidding. <laughs> yeah, it didn't really help. <laughs> That's what hand waving is all about. That was awesome, man. And then are you going to end up implementing Frost into that setup as well to make all the multi-sig in the background even harder to tell what's happening? Well, well Frost is like a more, more complicated uh, kind of multi-sig, right? Yeah. So it's, it's like so, this with multi-sig. Oh, exactly. So what I just, <laughs> described, what I just described is meant to solve liquidity problems. What Frost is meant to solve is the security problem which is right now your funds in your lightning wallet are nowhere near as secure as your cold storage, as your multi-sig cold storage, because your lightning funds is hot keys and it's not multi-sig. So if we want to abstract away this difference where you don't need to know L1 or L2 or whatever, that means we got to close the security gap between these two things because we can't have like this firewall where the cold storage funds aren't available for lightning liquidity at all. We want a way to, to kind of make the lightning funds have a similar security posture. We can never make it as secure because there's a lot of attack vectors in lightning, but we can make the key management look more like multi-sig with Frost. Is because is there, is there a corollary to this in current internet protocol stack, like uh, somewhere in the TCP IP stack? Um, not really, because there's not really the concept of, of, well, there is potentially in like some of the key management systems that secure, let's say, uh, like the TLS certificates and the DNS certificates. It's not TCP IP per se. Because there's no co there's no cryptographic keys in TCP/IP. I mean, they travel over TCP/IP, but they're not embedded in the protocol itself. So it's once you get into signing with keys, where something like Frost comes into play, and anywhere where there are very important keys where you need key management, it can be useful. And the thing is, in Bitcoin, the way we've set up multi-sig in the past is with scripts, where there's a special Bitcoin language where you explicitly state all the public keys that are part of the multi-sig, key one, key two, key three, and you have the whole public key there. And you then you just put explicitly what the threshold is. So if it's a two of three, you'd write two into the script. And so then when you redeem the UTXO, the, the script like lays out exactly what's supposed to happen, but then also reveals to the world exactly how it was redeemed. So what we can do with Frost is we can, instead of using scripts to get these multiple parties involved, we can generate a single key with multiple parties that doesn't use the Bitcoin protocol at all. This is just, this is just part of the cryptographic SEC P256K1 um, protocol for generating public-private keys and signing with them that can be used for any cryptographic system, whether Bitcoin or anything else, um, you can generate a valid key within that protocol 
using multiple parties. So let's say let's say everybody uh, let's say we have Alice, Bob, and Carol. They all send some data around to each other, and at the end of this process, there's a single public key. And the private key is split into shares. This, if you're familiar with Shamir secret sharing, they're Shamir shares. Um, it's split into these shares, which means each of these people, Alice, Bob, and Carol, they have a piece of the private key, but no one has the whole thing. Nobody knows the whole private key. And there's one public key, and the private key's actually never been generated at all as a single thing. It, it, it's split from the beginning, which makes it easier to secure than something that was in one place and then has to be split. It's split right from the beginning. And so now Alice, Bob, and Carol, they can sign a transaction with their pieces of the key. And it requires, let's say, two of three of them to sign. Um, and they produce a single signature and a single key. And from the perspective of the blockchain, it just sees one key and one signature, and it doesn't know that behind the scenes, multiple people were involved in constructing that signature. Yeah, you uh, you gave a really good analogy when you were talking with MBK a couple of days ago about how when you break up the key, if you think of it as points on the line, with any two points, you can reconstruct the whole line. Um, exactly. Just doing this for y'all, getting my hands out here. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I just I, I really like that uh, that visual. It helped me understand what you were talking about because otherwise I was a little lost. Yeah, I mean this gets into the kind of esoteric aspects of cryptography that are also much easier to break down with a whiteboard and visuals and stuff because you get into like polynomials and things that like sound really confusing but aren't when you can just see like visually what's going on. But it is that principle, which is that if you have any two points, there's only one line that goes between those two points. And similarly, if you have any three points, there's only one parabola that goes through those points. And for any n points, there's only one n minus one degree polynomial that fits those points. And so Shamir shares are these points. And the secret is embedded in the polynomial and it, you can go from the points back to the polynomial so you can get to the secret. The cool thing about Frost is you actually don't actually go back to this secret because that's how we did this in the past or like when I worked at Coinbase and we did key generation ceremonies. We would create a private key ceremonies? and we'd split it. Oh yeah, key generation ceremonies are wild, by the way. Um, you pulling my I mean, chain, is, Jesse? Yeah, no, this is that's what it's called. It's 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 like the official industry term for the specialized process by which you generate highly secure private keys. And right. we would employ really cool things like a Faraday tent that blocks out all electromagnetic information from leaving the tent. And we would have computers that we would destroy afterwards to make sure awesome. that you know, just yeah, it was really cool. Um like the the kind of measures you need to take to protect keys that are going to have billions of dollars worth of value secured on them is super extreme. And say what you will about you know Coinbase, and there's a lot to say there in terms of shitcoins and all of that. But the security culture at Coinbase and and the processes that are used at Coinbase are super uh, impressive. Cool. All right. Well. Jess, you've been very generous with your time tonight, and we're getting towards the end. So I want to make sure you get an opportunity to uh, tell any of all, anybody in our audience uh, listening or watching where they can find you, uh, where they can take a look at what you are working on or what you're writing. Yeah, so uh, I you can find me on Twitter at, at Jesse Posner. Um, and on GitHub, I have the same handle. Uh, and... Uh, you can find my Frost PR in the SecP256K1-ZKP uh, repo, which is a fork of the SecP proper repo. Obviously. Um, of course. <laughs> as, you know, as everybody knows. Um, but it's where, you know, for the engineers out there, it's where the Musig code lives. 
Um, and uh, I would love uh, review on the PR. I'm almost done with the refactor and I'm trying to get this thing merged uh, as soon as possible. And then I have my weird like philosophical musings uh, on Twitter when I get around to, to tweeting that stuff out. Um, and you're on Noster yeah. too, right? Oh yeah, I'm on Noster, um, which I posted to my Twitter. Uh, <laughs> so you can find it on there. Yeah, um, you say, yeah. Can you say your public key? Go. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to read my uh, my public key. But, uh, I know the, yeah, I I know the first like four characters. It's NPUV. Wow, nice. that's uh, you've welcome. reduced my entropy. Got significantly. it. Significantly. Um, right, yeah, so my entropy. I'm going to be using that. <laughs> you've yeah, reduced I'm my entropy. That. Yeah. <laughs> like, whenever there's someone on me, I'm going to be like up the hand, and when like, you're reducing my entropy. Please stop. <laughs> Rusty. Yeah. Don't reduce my entropy, bro. Man, I was just in time for the question. I was just about to ask Rope, Rope to do uh, an RD accent, but uh, we all know my favorite has arrived. Oh, uh, it's probably his turn. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, I feel like, sh- you know, I just got here. <laughs> yeah, and just take the one thing I had going for me. Go ahead, Rusty. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Well, now I kind of want to give it to Rope. No, no Rusty. Rusty, oh, right, Rusty. Oh. Rusty it is. Yes. Oh, thanks for the vote of confidence there, Becca. Um, all right, all right, all right, Mr. Jesse. Only just arrived, but just, just wondering. You, you were very technical there, very enjoying that conversation, was listening offline. Uh, I was just wondering, if the meme factory did exist, and we all know it doesn't, which one of us would you mute, which one of us would you retweet, and which one of us would you like, and which one of us, of course... Will you use that? Well, I think I'd retweet everyone. This has been uh, an absolute, absolute pleasure. Uh, Try again. Don't communist. make, don't make me pick favorites. I didn't realize we had a communist on the show. Oh, yeah. goodness. You all you know, get a retweet. There's communistic <laughs> aspects of Bitcoin. We all own the code equally. Play it's open source. <laughs> uh, you know, so... But it's it's free market principles as well. So kind of yep. it transcends the uh, the sale dialectics of the past. Okay, so who are you retweeting? Well, yeah, yeah, one, just yeah. one. Yeah, one retweet. I uh, I think I'm gonna have to go with Greg on this. <laughs> my retweets are catching up to my mutes. <laughs> yeah. He forgot that he we're had a mute, or else he, he would have held that retweet. <laughs> I was just thinking, with that answer, we probably should just revert back to his uh, like retweet. Everyone. <laughs> retweet everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, you still got a like, you still got a uh, a mute, and you still got a zap. Oh, you're you're actually gonna make me go through? Yeah, dull oh, him yeah. out. Yes, dull him out, buddy. <laughs> uh, let's see. I think I'm going to mute Rusty because yes. he like forced this question upon me. Yeah. So it's yeah, only, yeah, it's only fair. Only fair. Um, yeah. And I'm going to zap Bitcoin Becca for the wonderful uh, treats that she offered me. That's yes. Right. Yeah, that butthole bread schmear. Butthole bread schmear. And, and the sandwiches as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. That's exactly. Yes. The treats and the sandwiches. The whole smorgasbord, if you will. Yes, yes. What are we left with? A like? Like. Yeah. Like, yes. Oh, a like? Um, I'll give my like to Yellow because he's such a cute, adorable creature. Good. That's, that yes. actually works out perfectly yes. because since Sean got nothing, we're going to give him the spotlight. Yes. <laughs> you gave me the dunce cap. Come on. I got nothing. Uh, Bro, you, <laughs> you rocked a natural dunce cap for like four years. Oh. <laughs> all right uh jesse now we're gonna test your bitcoin knowledge do you know what happens at block height eight hundred and forty thousand? uh no Ooh, you failed <laughs> Uh, right. think about it think about it there's only there's only okay. so many things that I'm... happen <laughs> something, something breaks uh i don't know is the 
<laughs> like the well, it's uh, getting warmer. It doesn't break, but it may get cut down the middle. Oh, the have it. Ah! Hey! Yay! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The having is what happens, and uh, we, the Mean Factory, are throwing the having party in El Salvador. And, oh, nice. Yes. And it'll go April 3rd through the 5th. Uh, <laughs> come on down. We would love for you to be there. And honestly, if uh, if if you can make it, we want, we would love to have you do a workshop if, if that would be something that you're willing to do as well. So come on down. It's going to be a blast. There's going to be a bunch of plebs down there. It's, it's Bitcoin country. And uh, this time around, you don't got to watch Anthony Pompliano crack up with a beer <laughs> having like he did in 2020. You can actually spin it with some plebs. So come on down. Nice. I would absolutely love to. Uh, I'd be honored to be there. I haven't been to El Salvador yet. This sounds like the perfect opportunity to do that. So thank you for the warm invitation. Yes. Excellent. Does, uh, uh, does Rusty have a question? Yes. What's up, man? Yeah, yeah. But, but it was, uh, oh, I, know it's, I, know it's, I know it's over. Are we still, we're still live though, right? Still yes. live. Wait, this is live? This is live. <laughs> Um, there's actually a question for Sean. What happens if Pomp shows up to the? What if we uh, <laughs> we all... <laughs> then, then, then we won. We won. Yeah, yeah. basically, <laughs> basically, that's a good answer. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in tonight. Really appreciate it, Jesse. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This has been absolutely a blast. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks, Jesse. Cheers. Thank you. Ciao.